0: Did you know BioCeuticals has a clinic-only range developed for exclusive use by clinicians? This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses and specific ingredients for specialised cases. BioCeuticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit biosteuticals.com.au to learn more. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Today, we're lucky enough to have two experts joining us. First is Kerry Sutcliffe, who has a background in psychology and counselling. Kerry is also a childbirth educator and PhD candidate at the School of Medicine, Sydney, studying the impact of childbirth education on birthing outcomes. We also have with us today, Dr. Kate Levitt, who is Senior Research Fellow at the University of Notre Dame School of Medicine, and also an Adjunct Fellow at Nickham Health Research Institute in Western Sydney University, and an Honorary Fellow at the Centre for Midwifery, Child and Family Health at UTS. Kate is also an experienced acupuncturist, and focuses her clinical work and research on the use of complementary medicines for maternal and reproductive health outcomes. Her PhD investigated a complementary medicine antenatal education program for pain relief in labour, and I cannot wait to dive into the insights from this study. Today, we're going to be discussing the landscape of birth and looking at how current research is shaping the future of birth in Australia. Welcome to FX Medicine, ladies. Thank you so much for being on the line with us today. Hi, Emma. Thanks for
1: having us. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having us.
0: In Australia, there are approximately 300,000 babies born each and every year. In 2020, our caesarean section rates were on average 37%, with a breakdown of 29% for women birthing in a public hospital, and 43% for those birthing in a private hospital. Our national C-section rate is currently one of the highest in the world. The current global average of C-section births is 21%, and the World Health Organization has projected Australia's C-section rate to hit 45% by 2030. Now, reasons for this increase vary, but three main drivers have been identified – The first is the fear of pain during birth, including the pain of uterine contractions. The second is the convenience to schedule the birth when it is most suitable for families or healthcare professionals. And lastly, C-section can be perceived as being less traumatic for the baby. Today, I want to deep dive into the world of birth and bring to light the extensive experience of both our guests, so that we can learn how we, as clinicians, can help women be more informed and prepared for birth. Now, Kerry, can you give us some highlights around the historical landscape for birth? Let's set the scene with this.
1: Yeah, that's a really good first question, actually, Emma, because often we don't stop to think about the current context of birth. And yet our approach to it is a result of how we got here. So looking at the history of birth gives us a really good insight into why we do what we do now. So a lot of what I'll, I'll mention now comes from Dr. Rachel Reed's book called Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage, which is a great resource if anybody wants to go away and know more.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: in a very quick nutshell, I'll kind of take you on a whistle-stop tour of birth. So if we go way back, and I'm talking several thousand years ago, female figures and the birth process was very highly regarded. Mm. And while the women were the ones giving birth to babies, the collective tribe helped to raise them. And so we had many female gods and women in birth and pregnancy were revered. But the development of agriculture over time changed how people were living. And instead of a matricentric society that centred on the mother, Mm -hmm. patriarchal societies ruled by men and involving ownership of land emerged. And alongside this, religions where we'd previously seen separate female and male gods Mm -hmm. now became kind of one overarching father god. So now nature was deemed as being below humans because we were owning the land and humans were inferior to the the father god. Mm -hmm. So women's reproduction, which was tied to nature. So thinking, for example, how menstruation was following the cycles of the moon. Mm. Women were now deemed as less important and religions were claiming that women should be subordinate to men. However, childbirth was one area where women maintained knowledge and power. And women and wise women who attended births were providing holistic care for the women in their care. Mm. So lots of our current birth practices, though, originate from Europe. And in the 12th century, universities appeared that were offering higher education to wealthy men. And so male physicians, which were supported by religious and state leaders, then began positioning themselves as the only legitimate medical practitioners um, that ultimately started to see midwives, you know, trying to be pushed out and eradicated. But within their communities, they were still really highly regarded. Um, other women knew the value of their expertise and knowledge. So, in a further attempt to kind of push them aside, they were described as witches and over the centuries, whilst they lost kind of control of medicine overall, they still retained childbirth. Mm -hmm. And then in the 16th century, science started to shift that power because human bodies were then thought about in mechanistic terms. And the invention of medical instruments to offer solutions to complicated births, such as forceps, which only male physicians were allowed to use, Mm -hmm. then saw the emergence of the man midwife or the male midwife, which was the predecessor of obstetricians. However, they were only called upon in kind of complicated births. So again, there was a bit of an exaggeration of the dangers surrounding birth. But then wealthy women who could afford their services would bring them in for a, a just-in-case kind of scenario. Then going to kind of the 17-1800s, the Industrial Revolution, it led to overcrowded towns and cities. Mm. So there was more general sickness and injuries. And so childbirth fever rates, which were increasing at the time because doctors were spreading bacteria from sick um, or even dead to birth. So death due to high infections was was high until antibiotics were discovered mm. and birth was seen as this increasingly dangerous event. So by now, birthing in the hospital was fairly common, although home birth was still the norm for much of the kind of up until the second half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But in the earlier part of the 20th century, we had twilight sleep, which involved women taking highly sedative drugs, going into a sleep state. Waking up after having a baby, but with no recollection of it, and were having to be strapped down to beds to avoid injuring themselves because they were kind of moving and thrashing about due to the drugs. So we had a kind of situation where, in the mid 1900s, you know, male partners were in waiting rooms, unable to be with their mm. their partner. Women were increasingly saying, "We want to be awake for the births of our babies," and then this led to the start of the structured childbirth education courses that we see today. Mm -hmm. to give women and partners some strategies to cope in labour. But even since, you know, we've had this increased medicalisation, routine interventions. Often we see birth as this event now that has to be quite efficient and timely. The 1980s were quite a technocratic approach to birth and Mm -hmm. also the fear of litigation came about. And so we kind of find ourselves now in Australia with the majority of women giving birth in the hospital. It's kind of around about the 93% of women who give birth in hospitals. We have high intervention rates. There's a lot of fear surrounding it. And this is kind of, you know, how we've got to where we are today. So it is important to look at that history to see how our approach over all those generations and years has led us to now being a position where this is how women commonly approach birth and give birth in a hospital setting.
0: Yeah, it's so big, isn't it? And I love that explanation. It really helps me understand why we are where we are with birth in Australia at the moment and and things have really changed sometimes in a better way and sometimes not but as a childbirth educator you know you're speaking to women that have birthed all the time what uh-huh. themes reoccur in their birth experiences because i know for me you know whenever i am speaking to a new patient that's a woman and she is a mother, part of her case taking is asking about birth and pregnancy and her birth experience. And it just amazes me the amount of times that tears automatically come to a woman's eyes about her birth experience. And it might've been 20, 30 years ago, but you know, birth experiences have such a profound impact on a woman.
1: They do. You know, it's such a transformational time in a woman's life to be giving birth. And this is something that, you know, will stay with her for many years and and decades to come. In terms of the kind of the the themes why as a childbirth educator, women would initially come to me in Mm. terms of, you know, why they're wanting to seek out courses, is that I mean, firstly, we've got first-time parents who never done this before. They don't know much about birth and like I have described in that history of birth, we're not around it in the same way now. It's moved into hospitals, mm. we're not attending births, you know, as once upon a time we might have been supporting family members and stuff as well too. Um, and there's a lot of scary stories surrounding birth. Mm. I find it very interesting how people share this with information in the in for women in the lead up to their own births, Um, whether that's well-meaning, you know, family members and friends or the the person who's behind us at the the checkout at Woolworths. But it's really interesting how women are, are set up for birth. So our perception of it is influenced for many years and even decades before we ourselves are the the one who's pregnant from TV and and movies and so on. Mm. Um, So when we are pregnant, this can often be our real first experience of it, the first time we've really given any consideration to what we want to do and how we want to manage it. And we have become kind of detached from that process. For couples who might come to childbirth education who've already had a birth, it's very much that they're tend to be looking for a different experience. Mm, Um, And maybe their first birth unfolded in a way that they didn't expect or they weren't feeling prepared for and they're seeking to have a more empowering birth. So as a childbirth educator, it's it's my role to help provide women and the support person with knowledge and tools for all eventualities. Mm. So I really want women and families to, to come out of the birth feeling good, feeling positive about their experience and a positive experience can look and feel like different things to different people and that's okay it's not about creating births or look and feel the same And um, because it's not possible every birth is different every birth is unique and a really personalized and individualized approach is, is what should be central to this so what I find is that when women and partners are given tools and techniques to mm. to help them navigate the birth that they start to understand labor and how their bodies work or given information and knowledge to educate themselves about the pros and cons of different approaches mm. they often can utilize that to come out of birth feeling good and um, even if sometimes the birth may take on a, a different path but you're right you know those tears flowing that you mentioned mm. birth trauma is very real um they talk about how about 1 in 3 women experience birth trauma A lot of that is put down to what's said to the woman or how it's said to her. Um, And then about one in 10 go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So there's a real range of experiences that women come out of birth experiencing. And unfortunately, we hear lots of negative stories. But it is possible to have a positive experience when you've got the, the right support, the right care providers, the right circumstances, the right knowledge information and tools. I think it's important that we also let women know that this can be a very positive, empowering experience.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And those childbirth education programs, I mean, who develops them in the first place? I mean, they have such an important role. Mm-hmm. Education is key in this space, but who actually develops them and you know, how do women access them? Because there's all different types of programs out there.
1: There is, Um, and kind of in terms of who actually develops them, it's quite interesting, really, that there's no standard approach to to what goes into classes. Mm. It can be very much up to the people within the hospital in terms of what they cover. Um, Hospital is where women largely access information um, regarding pregnancy and birth, Mm -hmm. and this is partly because you know some of the evidence around childbirth education can be conflicting. So, some studies show some improvements in some areas, some studies show improvements in others, other studies might not show any improvements. So, with so many mediating factors present. It's also you know a little difficult sometimes to know what worked in one situation but not in another perhaps. So there is an organization called Capia, Mm -hmm. um, which is the Child and Parenting Education Australia, which does a great job, but there's no requirement for people to register with that. So the content of courses and how they develop can be influenced by what has been in the course to date at that um, place, the interests of the people who are coordinating the courses, Mm -hmm. time available to develop them and the ethos and the philosophical approaches of the place that's delivering them. So I think this has led to some hospital courses being outdated. Mm, Um, Typically, they can't or don't move as quickly, perhaps, as the kind of independent sector. So, I'm seeing a growing number of courses from outside providers, which from my own experience are becoming increasingly popular. Women are seeking information from alternative places. Mm. So, you're right. It can be quite confusing for women to know what to do in preparation for birth, whether to do it with the hospital, an external provider in a group one-to-one one. And so I suppose my advice around this would be to choose a course that has content that's most likely to help you to prepare for the birth that you do want. Mm. And so I think there's some thinking that women need to do there in terms of what is this birth all about for me? And what does it look like? What would be a positive experience for me? And who's gonna help me gain the the tools and the knowledge to achieve that as much as possible.
0: So If we sort of zoom back a little bit, if you had to put it simply, you know, what would be the main differences between a standard antenatal education program and one provided by, for example, the Complementary Therapies of Labour and Birth program that Mm -hmm. Kate has studied? I mean, how can we talk to our patients, the women in front of us, about the differences between these two options they have?
1: So... The standard kind of hospital type courses, there is a bit of an argument that they're set up to promote compliance with hospital policies, that they mm-hmm. can be focused more on the, the medical management of birth okay. rather than what a woman can do to help herself and, and support herself during labour. So, you know, women talk about how when they've come out of those courses, sometimes they're quite largely focused on the drugs that are available okay. or how an epidural works. But in terms of how the woman can cope with her own resources and her own capacity to give birth, it, it isn't as as well addressed in, in some of those classes. I do think there's a bit of a shift happening in some hospitals, I think that's largely prompted by the increasing popularity of external um, providers. So thinking of the complementary therapies for labor and birth program Mm. that that Kate and I work on, this course has more of an emphasis on non-pharmacological ways to support a physiological labour. Okay. So physiological, a woman using her own coping strategies, working with her own body, labour and birth. And what I find that with this course is that it's providing techniques to help a woman either feel more in control or stay calmer, help to reduce the pain associated with birth, and you know thinking of it as a functional pain. It's her body doing something to birth her baby, and importantly bringing in partner support as well because I think that's they're often an untapped resource in Mm. the birth room And yet that birth partner is probably the person who knows mums best. Um, And if we can enhance the support that they're able to offer, this could be beneficial to women. So the course itself includes a number of techniques, things like breathing, acupressure, visualization, upright active positioning, that partner support and so on. Mm -hmm. Talking about the amazing hormones that a woman has within her that's supporting labor. And I think that's a real major part of the course as well. That once women and partners start to understand um, what's happening within, a woman's body to support this. Um, I think they then don't necessarily automatically start seeking out the medical interventions. They think, I've got this toolkit of other things that I could be doing to support labour and birth. So, in a previous study, and I know Kate's going to go on to, to talk about this, so mm. I won't talk too much, but you know, we saw a significant reduction in kind of the use of epidurals and cesarean rates and so on. So women and partners were, were finding this very useful to support physiological birth.
0: Yeah, and I think the role of the birth partner, I know you've done a lot of work in that space, but from my experience clinically, you mentioned it's an untapped resource and I think this is so true because to have that birth partner also empowered Uh, Mm -hmm. and be in that space with purpose can make the difference between whether that woman ends up having a physiological labour or whether it becomes a medically managed birth.
1: A hundred percent. I completely agree with that. And that's where my interest lies as well in in terms of my PhD and the work that I'm doing on that.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: tell Um, us more about that. I'm interested. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm interested in how childbirth education gets translated into practice so I think it's one thing for a woman and a partner to attend a course and be given information and techniques about what can help in labour but it's another thing to actually be able to apply it during the labour itself Mm. so for me the interesting part of what's going on is about what's happening between the woman and the people around her so her partner any other support people the midwife doctors and so on Um, and what is it about those relational aspects that might create barriers or enable us to childbirth education techniques being used so my study and my research has got an emphasis on researching that partner support the role of the care provider and how a woman's own kind of reactiveness when she's feeling anxious impacts on what she does so why might a woman who was previously using childbirth education to good effect then decide to stop using it at some point in labor so I'm using a a theory it's called Bowen family systems theory Mm -hmm. and it's It's a theory of human behavior that views family members or people we spend a significant amount of time as, as like an emotional unit. So it uses systems thinking to describe the complex actions and interactions that take place between a member of a family. It talks about how we live under the same emotional skin. So we're so intensely connected to these people that they profoundly affect each other's thoughts, feelings, actions. And, you know, we might even be able to think of this in our our own um, relationships that we have, you know, a a spouse or a child or a colleague does something and it it has an impact then on maybe what we do or say or how we do something next. So, Mm. This theory has a big emphasis on anxiety and Mm -hmm. how people differ in their ways of coping in stressful situations where there's heightened emotions. And I can't think of many other events in life that are as emotionally (laughs) charged as birth. So it's really well placed to, to look at why a woman might continue or discontinue what she's learned in class during her labour. And I'm kind of, you know, really excited to see what might come out of this, because I think that relationship factor could be a really important mediating factor in the use of and the usefulness of childbirth education. Yeah.
0: And working out that missing link between, you know, if a woman has the knowledge and awareness, but then something happens that she can't apply it or continue applying it. Like, what is that missing link? Because if that was addressed, obviously that would have a huge ripple effect across the outcomes of birth nationally.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I definitely. You know, is that missing link. Why is it that some women can be so armed with knowledge, information, and techniques, but then for some reason it just doesn't get used in labour and birth, or mm. you know, it gets given up and so on. Um, you know, what is happening at, at that point? Um, and I really do think that the people around the woman at that pivotal point in labour can be making a real difference as to, to whether or not she continues to use these techniques or potentially then starts to look at, at different options. Mm,
0: yes, absolutely, and you know. I read in your PhD proposal that our current maternity system tends to direct more than listen to women and that antenatal education is often biased towards the medical management of birth. Now, we're talking to a whole heap of clinicians, including myself. So I really want to know, how can we better support our patients in their birth journey so that they have more optimal outcomes?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important as clinicians to let women know that knowledge is power. Mm. It really is important to educate themselves, to be aware of how we as workers impact them. If we can build more agency in women, then hopefully that will help them to kind of drive change in the system if they feel that they can be empowered that they can use this kind of information that they can seek more i suppose in terms of you know that their birth experience there's a vast array of different approaches to birth and i believe there's something like 11 different models of care here in Australia so it's a you know confusing system for, yeah. for women to navigate so you know depending on whether you're at a hospital or at home or which care provider you speak to women can be given very different recommendations and support so encouraging them to feel confident to ask questions, to weigh up the pros and cons of different options available to them and um, because the different models of care um, have varying outcomes. There was a study done that looked at 1.2 million births here in Australia mm-hmm. and when they looked at uncomplicated pregnancies, which was a single baby, reached full term, they were head down. In comparison to giving birth in a hospital like labour ward, the odds of a normal labour and birth were twice as high if they were at a birth centre, six times as high if they were at home. So where and whom you birth with has a big impact on the the birth you may go on to have. So... Making them aware of that kind of information, mm. and as clinicians as well, you know, working in a, a collaborative manner, you know, using your specialisms to really support the woman in the in the lead up to birth, and whether that's kind of encouraging her to seek out childbirth education, or also have a session with an acupuncturist or a naturopath, mm. or mm. gain the support of a doula. Um, I think it's really important that women um feel that she has people around her who are supportive, who she feels safe with in the lead up to and during birth, and who are aligned with helping her to achieve a positive and empowering experience. We all have our own biases. I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that as well and then put that aside and be supportive of the woman and her decisions.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, birth itself is so primitive. Like as a woman who's given birth myself, you enter this sort of primal state and it makes sense that the people around you make a big difference to your experience and we used to as you started out we used to birth you know Uh, with wise women and surrounded by women that that really had our back so to speak so uh, yeah I think it's the awareness is really important it is a transformational time in a woman's life and knowledge is power I I can't agree with you more on that front and just keep on seeking out more knowledge but those birth stories that you get when you're in the line at the market when you're heavily pregnant, oh my goodness.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting one isn't it, you know, to think that, you know, how are we setting women up for birth women are not going in particularly confident if they're always hearing the, you know, the the horror stories and and the negatives and and stuff like that. And interestingly I find as well that women who do have positive birth experiences mm. sometimes feel a little shy about sharing them for fear of feeling like they're, they're bragging and it's not that they're bragging, you know, they I was no I had 3 very positive birth experiences and mm. there's nothing special about me. I, you know, decided that I was going to take some ownership for this birth and I was going to find some information. I was going to y- develop techniques and I knew medicine was there as a backup. Should yeah. It shouldn't be required, but I armed myself with some other things first to say, let's use these, you know, let's take it, strip it back. Let's get back to basics and let's do this.
0: Yeah, well, it is a very natural event and the normalization of birth is something that we do have to keep focused on. hmm
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Now, Kerry, one last question before I let you go. How do you think we as clinicians can help to lower the rate of unnecessary interventions? What can we do?
1: Um, I think first it's worth noting the importance of that question about being unnecessary interventions because there is a time and place for intervention Mm. and I'm sure that for many people who might be listening to this, we have access to good obstetric midwifery care you know, if it's required. But it's, it's also really important to know that for women, there is high intervention rates um, and we need to question why that might be. So the World Health Organization talks about how labour and cesarean rates, genuine medical need in around 10 to 15% of pregnancies. However, in Australia, first time mums is about a 46% um, mm-hmm. induction rate. You've already mentioned the cesarean rate was at 37%. Mm. So I think for clinicians, for many of them, they may be seeing pregnant women more than the birth professionals, the health professionals, you know, if a woman's having a weekly appointment with an acupuncturist, a naturopath or going to yoga sessions every week, mm. the information and the support that they're providing can really help to, to build confidence, make them aware of their options, encourage them to educate themselves, you know, stick with our own areas of specialism, but also have that collaborative approach. So as clinicians, make links with other pregnancy and birth professionals in the area mm-hmm. um, so that we can all work together to enhance pregnancy, birth and the postpartum. And really, it kind of comes back to the fundamentals of relationship based care, evidence based recommendations, and also recognizing that risk doesn't inherently lie within a woman's body, which is what a lot of women can sometimes think. But the interventions themselves, whilst they can be life saving at times, the overuse or the inappropriate use of them can cause problems too. So, really, just encouraging women to to gain information, educate themselves and support them in the lead up to birth with the specialisms that you have um, to really promote that for her.
0: Great. Some very wise words there, Kerry. Thank you so much. Now, Kate, your research has fundamentally helped shape best practice evidence in this field of birth. Can you share with us a little background on your PhD paper, which was Complementary Therapies for Labour and Birth Study? And tell us what you discovered
3: in that PhD. For sure. Thank you. We didn't know what we would find going in. And so it was a really great kind of outcome I think for everyone because so far before we started the study there was very little evidence about the impact of antenatal education or childbirth education okay. and so it was sort of much of a muchness you know there was no the latest systematic review kind of said you know there's no real evidence for change in obstetric outcomes that sort of thing and so nobody was really focusing very much on the area and when I did my PhD when we implemented this program and it was at two hospitals in Sydney, one was a large tertiary hospital and one was a smaller sort of district hospital. So we okay. got a sort of diverse range of women and backgrounds, but the type of woman we found who was interested in participating in the study was largely similar. So we, we need to take it in with a little bit of a context of the women who are likely to participate versus the women who are not likely to participate, which is where it leads to Kerry's PhD, which I think is an interesting sort of point there. Mm. But we found that at the end of the study, there was a significant difference in the use of epidural use, which was what our primary outcome was, because it was a small study. We used an outcome that was sort of more common, and so that was epidural use. And we found that there was a big difference in epidural use between the two groups, the study group and the control group who received standard hospital care. Okay. And the study group received standard hospital care plus this two-day workshop where we introduced five complementary therapy techniques to mm-hmm. support labour and birth, as well as information about normal physiology of birth, as well as directed supportive care techniques for the partners and the partner could be anybody and it could be more than one person. So it was whoever the woman chose to bring with her. Okay. So that sort of three-pronged approach was how the whole course was interactive. And we found a significant difference then in rates of epidural use, women were much more likely to use complementary therapies On and on average they used between three and four different therapies during their labour, which is wow. a, an important point. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. They used different things and there was no one thing in particular that contributed to this lowering of epidural use although acupressure was probably the most likely. Okay. Then we also saw on the back of that a reduction in augmentation rates so there was less need for augmentation once an epidural wasn't used okay. and then we saw the outcome of interest was that cesarean section was lowered. And okay. that was the real that's the where the real difference lies. There was also a difference in the time for second stage of labor there was a difference in rates of perineal trauma and also the requirement for resuscitation of the newborn. So there were some pretty major outcomes that we found from the study, although it was a small group and although the women who participated tended to be higher educated, higher income and from a sort of more socio-demographically advantaged area of Sydney. So that was our particular demographic. And we saw in the qualitative outcomes That partner said that their favourite or their best used technique was acupressure, so that was something that they felt drew them into the birth space. They were able to use acupressure and some massage technique, that was the second most used one, Mm -hmm. Um, use those sort of manual therapies to help um, their partner to get through whatever aspect of labour it was that they were working on. And they also said that once they understood the normal physiology of labor and birth and what they were aiming for, so that educational background about normal physiology, then they were much more likely to implement those complementary therapy tools. Mm. But it was based on an understanding of normal physiology. Otherwise, they just kind of go, well, why acupressure? Why massage? (laughs) Why hypnosis? Like, what's the point of it? And when they understood the point, then they were able to use it with sort of some intent. So that was really, I think, an interesting finding and then we found from midwives saying, they said, well, look, we're too busy to do the education in our antenatal visits. Mm. We can't skill them up on these things. Women who come into labor with education are easier to work with. Okay. And they also said that they follow the woman. So if the woman comes in and she wants sort of lots of technology and interventions and that she needs that support, then they'll do that. So that's the technological approach. If she wants lots of supportive caregiving approaches, then they will work with that. So they follow the woman with her approach is the other thing they said. So that was, I thought was interesting too. They don't really have much impact, they felt, once a woman is already in labour.
0: Yeah. And fascinating, fascinating outcomes. And I can see why that was a little surprise to see so much change Mm. with, uh, Mm. you know, a two-day educational course that sounds like it was very kind of hands-on as well. But with that birth course that you studied, what were the main objectives of
3: the birth course? You know, what do people walk away with? The main objectives were around education. So education around normal birth, but also accommodating for variations in that. So we're not trying to say, look, you have to have this or you have to have that because every woman's circumstances are different and she needs to work with whatever her story is. And so you just don't know what's happened to women or where they're coming from or what their particular circumstance is, but coming from a basis of, okay, this is normal physiology. This is what we can work with. And now let's overlay that with what your particular circumstances are Mm which we don't always need to know, but she will need to know, and then what can we work with? So the thing I'm interested in is, say, induction of labour. Like Kerry said, we've got to think like an over 40% induction of labour rate at the moment. Another study that Kerry and I have been involved with, that one of the outcomes about that, the first baby study, was that women don't really understand the impact of induction of labour.
0: I would agree entirely because I hear it clinically all the time. It's something that happens to them and they don't seem to be involved in that decision-making either. 100%,
3: Mm. yeah. And they said, you know, if they'd known about, if they had a question for after birth, if they'd been able to ask anything more that they didn't understand in the first place... What would it be? And the majority of them said about induction of labour. So they would want to understand the implications of having an induction because it's passed off in the clinical setting of like, oh, look, we'll just induce you on Tuesday. It's no big deal. And it is a big deal. And women are traumatised by it. And there's lots of incidences of women walking away from birth feeling like they've had a traumatic event. And so I'm interested in then, okay, so this is happening in my clinical setting where you've got uh, an induction scheduled for a a particular reason, you want to go ahead with that. Now, here's some techniques that will support you and your partner to manage that induction. Mm, So it's not about removing interventions because some women really need it. It's about managing what happens after that. Mm. If you really need, if you're a high, you know, you've got a high, uh, you know, pain tolerance is altered or you've got a background of trauma or something's happened that you need an epidural, You go ahead, but here's how to manage that. Or you need an induction, here's how to manage that. So that's what I like to focus on about how to use these tools and techniques to manage normal and also to manage deviations from normal. So it sounds like there's
0: there's a lot of education that's passed across in this course. There's a bit of a toolkit of complementary therapies for pain relief, which is super handy. And then it's a lot of positive mindset regarding their
3: capacity to give birth. Yes. The positive mindset is really key, isn't it? Mm. And that that a woman has an understanding about what it is that she wants, wh- is involved in decision-making, and has some agency in her birth, despite what else is happening around her, mm. that she and her partner have decided that this is what they would like to aim for. And everything that happens, they have decision-making capacity, they're informed, they have agency in there and they are at the ones who are making the decisions at the end of the day. And they have a right to make a decision in any way they want based on full and frank information. Yeah. So that I think is important that clinicians, it's an everyday event for them, but it's a one-off for women. Mm, so yes. that real disclosure about pros and cons of every intervention or every management that that's going to occur and that women at the end, they have the ultimate decision-making capacity.
0: Yeah, yeah, which, you know, in turn lets them walk away from that experience feeling empowered Mm. and not disempowered. I mean, you're currently working on a prospective meta-analysis which is going to assess whether the addition of a comprehensive multi-component birth preparation program reduces C-section in women compared with the standard hospital care. So first of all, what is a prospective meta-analysis? If you can just talk us through the technical side of it there. And then how will this answer the question about antenatal education and c-sections and why is it important to address our high rate of c-sections? We know it exists but you know I guess why is it important to address it and what what do you think you're going to find from this study?
3: Good questions about the prospective meta-analysis and I think it's something that is like relatively novel in this area but if we think about a standard systematic review and meta-analysis, if anyone's ever read one, it's putting together a whole lot of Uh, research studies that have addressed a similar question. So Mm -hmm. maybe we've got antenatal education programs and someone decides to do a systematic review and meta-analysis. They put together these different programs so they've kind of done different things. They've assessed different outcomes. They've got different cohorts of women. They've got different um, lengths of time and outcomes that they're looking at. So we're putting these studies together. Mm. And then we're trying to do an analysis of outcomes. And you come to the realization that nobody's collected the same data and you can't put it together. And so it's like, well, the studies were too different and we weren't able to really put it together to see what the overall outcomes are. So we don't really know the answer still. Okay. What a prospective meta-analysis does is there are teams of researchers who have decided that they are going to, say, run a program of antenatal education or childbirth education. Mm -hmm. And we agree beforehand on the outcome measures that we're going to collect. Okay. And so we've got a range of outcome measures. We've developed a data dictionary. We've developed primary outcomes and secondary outcomes that are of importance. Mm -hmm. And we've involved clinicians, stakeholders, consumers, and representatives from different states, territories, and countries who have come to a consensus about what the important outcomes are and how it is that we might collect it. Okay. Okay. So, we might have different programs. You might have a yoga program that you're doing for childbirth education, and you've used some mindfulness and hypnosis in there. Mm-hmm. I've got an acupressure program that I'm using, and I've got some yoga and hypnosis, and somebody else has got a different program, and they've got three different techniques as well. So, we've decided we're going to put those together. And the basis is that we've got three different complementary therapies involved in our program. Mm-hmm. We've got some education about normal physiology and how to manage other, you know, so comprehensive physiology in there. And we've also got a mindset component. Okay. So those three components we've agreed are in our courses. And we've also agreed that we're going to collect particular outcomes. So, on the basis of that, we can put our studies together, even though they're different and diverse and have different women, we can put our studies together because we've captured the same data. So, that's what a prospective meta analysis does. Okay. And in that way, we can have a much more robust investigation of these um, research studies to say well look you know there's a whole lot of different programs out there and when we look at overall rates of epidural cesarean section and maybe induction of labor we can see that it has an impact in this way and for these types of women we're able to do a secondary analysis about what types of women it might be most effective for okay and collect much larger sample size. So our overall sample size is 2,000 women Okay. as right. opposed to a smaller study where we'd get maybe between two and 400 women.
0: I'm already excited. I don't know when the results are going to be released. <laughs> um, but, but what do you think you're going to see? I mean, I think the hypothesis is that there will be a reduction. But, you know, what
3: are your thoughts? That's what we're looking at. So is there going to be, on the basis of having 2,000 women mm. involved in this kind of study, we will be able to detect a difference of 5% in cesarean section rates. Okay. So the bigger the sample size, the more capacity you have to detect differences in those outcomes that may be a little bit less common. So cesarean section, even though it's at 30, 35%, it's still considered less common than maybe other outcomes. And you need about 2,000 women to be able to see if there's a difference of about 5%, which people think is clinically significant. So if we've got a reduction from 35% to 30%, that would be a clinically significant outcome that we're interested in. Okay. That makes sense. And if anyone has a program and, and it's an ongoing study. So at the moment, we've got two studies that are involved in, in the program in, in putting this data together. Mm-hmm. But if there was a, another study, so say a group from you know, New Zealand wanted to do a program of, of childbirth education, they could say, oh, listen, Kate, we're wanting to do a, a study as well. What are the outcomes you're collecting? We'll make sure we incorporate those outcomes into our study mm-hmm. and we'll work with you in putting the data together at the end of the day. So anyone out there who's really any has any interest in doing a study about childbirth education, this is something that you can join as a collaboration to be able to test on a bigger hypothesis on what your outcomes might be.
0: Great. So this is going to be quite dynamic and the information will continue to unfold, which is fantastic. I mean, look, the use of complementary medicine in women who are pregnant, it is high uh, and recommendations have been included in some of our maternity guidelines in Australia. And Kate, you were a co-author on a paper this year looking into this. What did you learn? What What was highlighted here?
3: Yeah, this was really fascinating to me that we've got all these complementary therapies. We've got good evidence for complementary therapies individually. Yeah. We have good evidence for women liking complementary therapies. Mm. We've got good evidence for usage in pregnancy. It's up around 60 to 80%, depending on the demographic that you're looking at. Okay, It's a really high usage. And so we thought, okay, on that basis, we'll go we'll have a look at the guidelines. We know that it takes a long time for for evidence to get into guidelines and into practice, Mm. on average 17 years. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's a really long time. And when we looked at the guidelines, we looked at every state and territory across Australia, and we found that in all of those guidelines, there was some pretty good information about vitamins and mineral intake, so iron supplements or vitamin D or things like that. They were the things that people addressed most comprehensively. Mm, okay. We had it we had about forty-eight guidelines and there were forty-one percent of them that went more than the routine vitamin and mineral supplementation. Mm-hmm. So a smaller proportion. So in those guidelines, there was such wide variations in what the recommendations were that there was not really that much consensus. There was things like consensus on ginger and vitamin b six for nausea and vomiting. okay there was some you know consensus around supplementation for women with obesity. but the guidelines poor overall scored quite poorly around the domains looking at editorial independence and rigour of development. And what does that mean? Mm. The rigour of development is about how did they do their search strategies? What evidence did they look for? And we found that most guidelines do not rely on the evidence base to make their recommendations. And that's really interesting. There was no evidence of a systematic review for them, of a search strategy, or that there was editorial independence in that there was a group of people from diverse backgrounds, including stakeholders and consumers who had input into that guideline. And it's, so that's where I think state guidelines, state and territory guidelines can really make a big improvement.
0: Absolutely. I'm a little shocked. As a layperson, mm. even as a clinician, I would presume that those guidelines were based on the evidence.
3: Mm. and the, the one that was the best was the national guidelines, so the Perinatal Society of Australia, New Zealand, Pazam, there's a national guideline, and they were probably the most comprehensive and had the best search strategy for evidence, but it still wasn't that comprehensive, mm, okay. and then all of the other guidelines sort of based their guidelines on that, but even within some guidelines, there was two in one particular state within their own guideline contradicted themselves. Oh. So there's real, real work to be done on and guidelines are really great way to get evidence into practice. Yes, And it's a pretty simple way. It's not that arduous to be able to incorporate those things. And it's a way to inform clinicians about the latest evidence. So that's where I feel like there's a gap and mm. that we can, we can fill that gap. That's some work to be done. So that that's where we're focusing a bit of our attention at the moment
0: yeah fantastic now you also wrote a paper on the cost analysis on the complementary therapies for labor and birth program and how this program can impact the healthcare costs of birth i would love mm. to hear more about this the detail of this right yes
3: We did do a cost analysis based on that original PhD study. And the cost analysis was interesting. And I worked with this brilliant health economist, Federico Girosi, and he's really, that was a great experience, about how you investigate cost analyses. And we used the basis of, okay, so who are we deciding is paying for this? Women are paying for it and the health system are paying for it. Mm. And looking at that basis... We used the health cost data within hospitals. So say you've got a woman and she comes in, she has an induction of labor, and then she gets an epidural, and then she has a normal vaginal birth. Mm -hmm. Then you've got a woman who comes in, she has no intervention, she's in spontaneous labor, she has a normal vaginal birth. Those two women are costed in exactly the same way despite their resource usage. Mm. So they're costed as a normal vaginal birth. So it's a little bit of a blunt tool. Mm. But so we've got those women, they're costed under normal vaginal birth. And then we have women who are like, okay, they came in, they had this and that intervention, they ended up with a forceps or a vacuum birth. Those women are costed under an, an instrumental vaginal birth. Right. Then we have another group of women who are costed under caesarean section. But if you have a woman, she comes in, she has an induction of labor, has an epidural, ends up having a forceps birth, that's failed, and she has to go in and have an emergency caesarean section. Mm. We costed her... In the caesarean section group. So it yeah. was the highest level of intervention. So even though she was costed across three domains, she yeah. only lands in the one where the highest level of intervention was. So that it's a mutually exclusive cost analysis. Does that okay. make sense?
0: Yeah, completely. Yes. Right.
3: Okay. So even though you've got lots of different levels of usage and cost within those groups, that's the way the health system works. So you've got a cost analysis based on that data. Mm -hmm. What we found was that the group where cesarean section was involved, that's where the most cost saving was for our study group versus our control group. And a cesarean section costs twice as much as a normal vaginal birth. Mm. So an uncomplicated cesarean section was the largest group and those women, on average, we'd say, we spent about $149, $150 per woman on delivering the intervention. So that's the childbirth education program. Yeah. So that's where we added cost. So $150 for a woman doing it. And then we've also got cost of, of service, so midwives who might be delivering programs or care or et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But we found that we saved about $808 per woman involved in the study group, and that was mainly based on a reduction in cesarean section. So with a cost of about $150 on average and a reduction of about $800-odd on average, the cost is about $650 per woman. And when you average that out over first-time women birthing in Australia, that's about 120,000 women per year. Yeah, yeah. The cost saving translates to $97 million a year.
0: Wow. That's yeah. uh, it's unfathomable. That's, yeah. that's quite incredible. And this is a program yeah. that is empowering women and women are very satisfied with saving $97 million for the Australian mm-hmm. economy. That's mm-hmm. incredible. This needs yeah. to be happening in every hospital, doesn't it?
3: It does, but you can see that where there's a lot of layers around this. So how do you demonstrate the cost and to whom? How do you influence guideline development? Mm. How do you get this a bigger study so that you can talk about which women will benefit most? And then, and it's replicable, how do you look at this in rural, regional, remote? Is it best online? And that's where Kerry's study is really looking at is online delivery going to be as good as in-person delivery, which we were kind of forced into having a look at that through COVID. Yeah. So, where do we focus our efforts so that we can get the maximum gain? And is it just financial gain that we're looking at? Women's access in rural and remote Australia might really be where we're gaining later on through reduction in mental health care costs Mm. down the track where, you know, we could really put it out there. Where are we saving money and health services in a long-term picture?
0: Yeah, look, I think the research in this space is going to be continually evolving, but there are so many different layers to it. But just starting with those basic fundamentals of a good antenatal program that helps women uh, have a better experience, feel more empowered and to have less intervention overall is such a fantastic thing. I mean, Kate, you are actually also a practicing acupuncturist. You're a very busy lady. Um, Can (laughs) you share with us any clinical pearls that will help us as clinicians change the statistics on birth?
3: Yes. And I'm really honoured, I suppose that's the word, to have this clinical practice where I see lots of pregnant women. Mm. And I love working in that space. It really just gives me so much joy. That we've got such opportunities to help women and their partners and clinicians. So I work a lot with the hospitals that are nearby to me and I've got good relationships with the MGP midwives and some other clinicians there. I've got good relationships with the doulas in my area Mm. and I will invite any of those clinicians to come into treatments with women so that we can have a continuity of care. And I find that I've probably got the most contact with women in that space if I'm seeing them maybe for fertility and then they get pregnant and we just to see the whole pregnancy journey and then we're prepared for birth and all that stuff. I've seen them a lot where their clinicians may have seen them less, especially if they're in fragmented care models. So it's a really great opportunity to be able to educate women just little by little. As they go along, you know, let's talk talk about this this week and let's educate or refer on. I often refer to Kerry's childbirth education where she does other childbirth education programs plus the acupressure. You know, we've got a good collegiate network, so that's great. Mm-hmm. When women come in from about 36, 37 weeks of pregnancy, we start to prepare for labour and birth, and so that's around mental, physical, emotional preparation. Yeah. We're looking at cervical ripening and readiness for birth and also that intermediary between what they're telling them at the hospital and how we can manage them in that space. So I need to have an epidural or I need to have a this or I can't have that or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's work with that with your partner. So I invite the partner to come in and teach the partner about massage techniques, acupressure techniques, pain relief for labor, how to be emotionally supportive, how to be physically there, what role they can have and the importance of their role. Mm-hmm. I'll invite the doula in if the midwives want to come. You know, whoever wants to come, invite them into that space to be able to do that overall education so that I can pass that on yes. and give the woman the most empowerment possible and continuity within into the hospital's system.
0: Yeah, amazing. Yeah. I think there's there's just so many layers involved. Carrie, I'd like to bring you in. I, I just want to know, you know, what do you see as the future of birth in Australia?
1: Mm, yeah, big question. It Where is. are we going? I think the last couple of years with COVID has really shone a light on the importance of women feeling emotionally supported leading up to, during, and after birth. And um, women want both clinically and psychologically safe births. We've already spoken mm. about the birth trauma and the PTSD rates. But when a baby is born, so too is a mum and a family. So I think the narrative around all that matters is a healthy baby really needs challenging. And mm. um, if a mum or dad is broken from their birth, you know, we need to think about the the wider implications of that. And research keeps telling us. The importance of continuity of care with an own midwife. It has so many benefits for women and babies. A Cochrane review that looked at 11 trials, 12,000 women that were lower medium risk. And um, when they looked at that, women were less likely to be hospitalised antenatally, less likely to lose a baby before 24 weeks of gestation, more likely to have a spontaneous vaginal birth more likely to feel in control, less regional analgesia, less episiotomies, less instrumental deliveries. Babies were staying in hospitals for a shorter period of times and mm. there was no increased adverse outcomes for women or babies in midwifery-led care. So I'm hopeful that practice will catch up with the evidence. Kate's mentioned on average it's around 17 years, but I really hope that more money will be invested into midwifery group practice models or access to home birth for women who want to access this. And I think importantly as well, women's voices are going to become more and more powerful mm. pregnant women are savvy consumers and they're I think as well as a, a top-down approach to changing birth that is looking at getting the evidence into guidelines and policies and so on and um, alongside a, a bottom-up approach that's led by women demanding more from their birth experience will be a key driver in what shapes the future of birth in Australia.
0: yeah amazing Well, thank you so much for joining us today, ladies, and sharing your wisdom and experience. Birth is a transformational time and knowledge is power. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website, fxmedicine.com.au. I'm Emma Sutherland. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to FX Medicine, and share us with your family, friends, and colleagues.